Heavenly Father, today as we open your scripture, your love letter to us, may we sense a clear picture of who you are. May we walk away feeling relief and less stress because of who you are. So just bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, over the last several years, I've really been growing in my picture of who God is. And uh, some of that is just because of how he's impacted my life and how he's been moving in my heart. And that's powerful to watch. But another big reason why I've been seeing a better picture of God is because of so many people that come and they talk to me and they, they, they share their picture of God and it doesn't match the picture of God that I have. And so there's this disconnect. And as we, we talk and I, I see the baggage that they're working through or their, their relationship baggage with others or their church baggage, it taints the picture of who God is. This morning, I hope that you see a clear picture of God, a God that is loving like no other, a God that uh, doesn't point fingers at you, a God that comes alongside you in the midst of sin. Just a few, uh, a little while ago, I had a teacher from a school and she came up to me and she said, Pastor Matt, I need your help. Um, I'm teaching Bible and I need you to come and act a scene in a Bible class. I'm not an actor, so I thought this is weird, but whatever, I'll do whatever for these kids. And uh, the, the North American Division Bible curriculum is fantastic. It's Bible encounters, and it, it helps our students dig into the Word and really stretch their mind to wrap around who God is. And so I was to come to this class along with another, uh, another pastor, and we were to act out as a fallen angel and an unfallen angel. And of course, I was the unfallen angel naturally, right? And so the, the students took time to ask questions to us as if we had been in heaven when everything fell apart. So I'm the unfallen angel, the other pastor's the fallen angel, and we're debating each other, trying to, trying to give perspective. Listen to some of these questions that the students brought up. How about this one? They asked this question. If God had immediately killed Satan when he rebelled, how would you feel about that? These are good questions. These are sixth graders. How about this one? Um, All right, unfallen angel. What was your experience like seeing Lucifer spread lies and rumors about God? Put yourself in those uh, golden sandals of that angel as you watch Lucifer spreading lies about God. What about this one? Why do you still follow him, unfallen angel, or fallen angel, if you know for a fact that without a doubt you're going to lose in the end? These are real questions from, from kids. And honestly, those questions push me to understand God in a different light. I, I get this question all the time with people that come and visit me, and they're, they're brokenhearted. They ask questions like this. I just heard this one recently. If God knew that sin would happen, if he knew it was going to happen, then why didn't he tweak the genes of Lucifer to eliminate sin from him when he was created? And it's these kind of questions that make me wonder who God is. And so this morning as we open the Bible and as we dig deep into a passage, um, I want to tell you the two points that I'd like to share with you. One is this. It's to paint a picture of God in a way where you can really see him as a God of love. And number two, it's to help us to put sin in a larger context of the great controversy rather than just the sins that happen on a daily basis. So if you've got your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open them to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is deep into the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's the blue book, and you can follow along on page 831. You'll read the same words that I read. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little context about what's happening. There's a little church in this town of Colossae. 
Paul probably didn't plant this church, but he knows about what's going on in the church, and so he writes this letter to the Colossians, and he writes it to them for, for a reason. There's two groups that have come into this church with the crazy ideas, weird ideas that are changing the picture of God. The two groups are the Gnostics and the Jews. The Gnostics and the Jews. The Gnostics, it comes from the Greek word ginosko, which means to know. It was a group of people that wanted to know everything, both good and evil, which sounds a whole lot like Lucifer in the garden as Eve comes to the tree and he says, uh, did God really tell you you shouldn't eat from this tree? Because when you do eat from this tree, you will know both good and evil. And the Gnostics, they said, let's experience every part of life that we can experience, the good, the bad, the ugly, just so that we can know about it. Now the Jews were a little different because they presented a picture of God without Jesus, without the Son, and they were saying that Jesus is just another one of the created angels. He's not really a God, he's not part of the Trinity, he's just another angel, just a created being. And so Paul, as he writes to defend this, he writes some powerful words. We're gonna look at this passage this morning and I, and I hope it speaks to you. Colossians chapter one, right there in verse 15. We've got seven or eight verses to, to power through this morning. Here's what it says. Let's read 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He says that the, the Son is the image of the invisible God, and I love this, because how many times have you seen God? How many times have you wondered what he's really like? Yet Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. And what Paul's really doing is he's stealing an illustration. He's stealing the words of Jesus from back, back in Matthew chapter 20. As somebody comes to Jesus and they say, hey Jesus, should we, should we pay taxes to the government? And Jesus says, somebody hand me a coin. Whose face is on it? It's the face of Caesar. My, my uncle, he did this to me one time when I was younger. And in fact, I need a volunteer this morning, someone that's under the age of 16. This will be worth your while, let me tell you. Jace, come on up here. You got, you got people rooting for you back here, man. He's like a choir roadie. Both of his parents are like in everything. Oh, they even sit next to each other. Nice. Hey, man. Glad you're here. What grade are you in? I'm in seventh grade. Seventh grade. How old are you? I'm 13. Okay, you passed the test. Okay. I have something for you. Now, my uncle did this to me, and I failed miserably as a, about a 10-year-old, and so I hope you don't fail this test. Okay, we got a $20 bill here with a dead president on it. Who is that? If you can tell me who it is, I'll give it to you. Oh. <laughs> you got a guess? It's not George Washington. No lifelines. <laughs> Who is it? I don't know. Read it. Read it. It's right there. <laughs> this is Andrew Jackson. Have you ever met Andrew Jackson? How do you know what he looks like? Because you see it on the bill. 
So you don't, you've never met him, you've never given him a high five, you've never shaken his hand, but you know what he looks like because you've seen his image, right? Okay, there you go. Merry Christmas. Imagine if that was a $100 bill. I'm going to have to go replenish my kid's piggy bank later on today. They're not here. They don't even know. Are you watching online? I'm sorry, Caffrey. Paul says that if you've seen the image of the, the father, then you know what he looks like. If you've seen Jesus the son, then you know what the father's like. He says the son is the image of the father. So if you don't know what God the father looks like, then just look to Jesus because he is the image of God. Paul continues talking. We, we've read this, we just read the passage. He talks about Jesus being the literal, uh, the firstborn of creation. Not the literal firstborn, but he's in the firstborn position. He's the highest of all. Not a created being, but he's in the position that gets the, 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 the high and lifted up and exalted status. He's the one that gets the birthright. Paul says that Jesus created everything, but more than that, he didn't just create it. All things were from him and for him, which means that as he creates life, all creation turns and bows back to their creator God. That's a powerful being. And he continues in verse 18. Here's what it says. Paul writes, he says, and Jesus is the head of the church, head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So then in everything he might have supremacy. We pause there. Paul gets a little personal. He talks about the church. He says Jesus is the head. He's the vision. He's the reason behind the church. He is the very beginning. Now in our finite minds, we always have a beginning and an end to things. Uh, when, we, when we think of a, of a loaf of bread, we start with ingredients and it ends up as a loaf. It begins and it ends. When we write a letter, we say, dear so-and-so, and we end it with love or sincerely. There's always a beginning and the end, but with God, he's always been there. He is the beginning. Genesis says, in the beginning, God. There's nothing before him. There's nothing that created him. He is the creator God. He's the one that holds all the power. And Paul even says he's the firstborn of the dead, which means he has the power over death too. He's untouchable. Are you seeing how, how Paul is creating this picture of, of an all-powerful God that has the power to do anything he wants, create things, power over death? He's got it all. He's all supreme. Verse 19, here's where I go. Here's how it says. For God, the Father, was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile, that means to bring back to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's beautiful. You see in the bigger picture of the gospel? See, way back long ago, heaven was filled with pure happiness. Uh, just wonder and, and glory filled the streets. It was beautiful. But at some point, and we don't really know when, Lucifer's, Lucifer's heart swells with this feeling that he wants to be like God. And I wonder if it happened as the Godhead, the Trinity, was, was dreaming about creating Earth. And as they thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if we created this planet filled with people that love us and they know our love for them too? But whenever it happened, Lucifer's heart begins to fill with this wonder of what it could be like if he was God too. And so he begins to spread lies about who God is. And sin enters his heart, and war breaks out in heaven. 
War breaks out because sin can't be in the presence of God. It's the natural result of sin, which is separation from God. And so Lucifer and his angels are thrown from heaven. In fact, the English Standard Version says that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Their sin, just like our sin, separated them. And forever on, there was this chasm between God and created beings. Their choice pushed them away from God, and there's this giant gap called sin. It's this divider between the creator and the created ones. And for the rest of history, humans, that's you and me, hang in the balance between uh, what it looks like to, to know God for who he is and to believe a lie about who he's not. And it's this separation known as sin that Paul talks about. We just read it a minute ago in verse 19, where God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to pull back to himself all things, that's you and me, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's the gospel message of what happens with sin and the gap between us as Jesus bridges that gap. And we get to verse 21, where I think it's a powerful message to many of us this morning. It says this, Once, or, or at one time, you were alienated from God. That means you were far from Him. At one point in time, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Enemies in your minds. I, I wonder what would life would be like if we could just get out of our own minds sometimes. I mean, we're always in our heads and we're always thinking that others think different things that are not reality, it's just in your head. Paul says that you think you're enemies of God, but it's in your mind, it's only in your mind. I mean, so often we, uh, with relationships, we think, man, they're probably thinking this about me, but it's not true, it's just in your head. Or you'll stand in front of the mirror in the morning and you'll say, Man, I have a huge nose. Or I'm so fat. Everyone probably thinks that I'm just really fat. When in reality, no one thinks that. It's just in your mind. And when it comes to sin, when we sin so often, we feel like we are enemies with God. Like He is opposed to us. Like He's angry with us. And we think, boy, we're enemies now. He doesn't want to be with us. Yet Paul says, it's just in your mind. That's not how it really is. See, when we sin, sin doesn't make you an enemy of God. Sin just shows you that you're human. It's the reality of being a human on this earth. Ever since Adam and Eve listened to Satan and ate the fruit from the forbidden tree, sin has been part of mankind. In fact, Paul writes it in Romans. Here, here it is on the screen for you. He says, when Adam sinned, Sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everybody's sin. It's just a part of humankind. Sin happened in heaven, sin happened on earth, and because, we, because sin happens with you and me, we are victims of the sin creator, that slippery snake, the devil. We're not enemies of God. Satan is the one to blame. Have you ever watched kids play together? I got a couple of kids. They're not little kids anymore, the big boys, eight and ten. 
Moms, you've heard this. Dads, you've heard this too. If you have kids, you hear kids playing in the other room and you rush in and you, they're fighting and you say, what happened? And you know what they say. They point at each other and they say, it's his fault or it's her fault, right? Kids do this all the time. Adults do it too. You get pulled over. You're driving too fast. The officer comes to your window and and he says, sir, why were you speeding so fast? And what do you say? All the other cars around me were going the same speed. It's their fault that I'm speeding, right? They're the ones to blame. Uh, We we do it at doctor's offices too. The doctor comes in and he says, ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have type two diabetes. And what do we say? It's not my fault, it's the high fructose corn syrup that those companies put in the food. That's why I have this. It's not my fault. They're to blame, right? We do this all the time. We'll do it when we, uh, with uh, kids or adults that are cheating, the teacher comes up and they say, hey, uh, I saw you cheating off of the guy next to you, and the student says, it's not my fault, I just had my eyes open, and his paper was right there, he didn't cover his paper, it's his fault. Do we do this all the time? Nobody likes the blame. It's convicting, it's pointed, it's embarrassing, it feels like you're trapped. It feels like you have guilt. And if the devil can give you guilt and keep you away from Jesus, then he wins. But I believe that Paul, knowing how humans would feel with sin in their life, he found a better picture of a God that loves you. And he puts it in this last verse that we'll look at today, verse 22. Listen carefully to these words as we think of the context of sin and blame. Paul says, but now... God has reconciled, that's made right, that's pulled you back, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. These must be the most freeing words in the Bible. Did you hear them? I don't, I don't know if you, I'm gonna read the last part again. This is what you look like because of Jesus. You're presented as holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Some of you have the New Living Translation. Here it is on the screen, here's what it says there. He says, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Are you kidding me? This is the most beautiful message in the Bible. It's as if Jesus speaks to you with, about this cosmic warfare that happens around you, and he says this, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you deserve to die, but sin has separated us, and it's not your fault, it's the devil's. I love, in the Old Testament, the sanctuary system, that model, because it shows you the richness and the depth of God's love for you through Jesus. Everything points to him. And there's one most confused part of the sanctuary system that happens on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, one day a year. It's the one day where all the Israelites, all the children of Israel, all the chosen people of God that want to serve and honor him, they'd come together and they'd worship and they'd confess sins. The the priests, they would do some heart-searching too, confess sin as well. Uh, two goats would be brought to the priest, and they would draw lots to figure out which goat was which, 
Remember, all year long, lambs were offered as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin, but all those sins had been forgiven because of the blood of the lamb. Now they have two goats here, and they would pick one that would be sacrificed, not as a sin offering, but as a cleansing offering. That one uh, goat would be sacrificed, and some of the blood that represents the already forgiven sins Jesus already forgave them by the blood of the lamb. They'd take some of that blood and he would put it on the other goat. Here's a picture. Maybe this will help you with the visual. Maybe you'll remember this picture for a while. He'd take the blood and they'd put it on the other goat's head. And this goat was called Azazel's goat, which is a fancy name, but it really just means the enemy's goat. Remember the enemy of God? (laughs) Not us, not even sin. It's the one that created sin. And he, the priest would take some of that blood and we'd put it on Azazel's goat and he would lead that goat out into the wilderness where he would die. Sin would be destroyed. It would be gone. Blame would be placed where it needed to go, not on the sinner, but on the sin originator, Satan. Jesus took the punishment and Satan got the blame. And doesn't that make a little more sense? I feel like this helps me understand God better because God doesn't stand there with a pointed, crooked finger at you as he waits for you to sin. He's not in heaven right now with a clipboard as he's watching and waiting and just watching for you to mess up where he can make a check mark or a tally mark. God's not a God that stands in heaven and and says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. You did it, you're the one to blame. That's not the God that I know. The God that I know says, my beloved child, yes, you've sinned, but it's not your fault. And because I love you so much, let me show you my mercy. He's a God that loves you so much that he paid the penalty and the punishment for your sin by sending his son Jesus to die like a sinner. And now because of Jesus, you stand before him faultless, and blameless. His mercy is so good, isn't it? (laughs) His mercy triumphs over his judgment. His grace is sufficient, and his love is overwhelming. This morning, I've asked our praise team to lead a a song that is a powerful one. Every time I listen to this song, it, it gives me chills, and I understand God in a deeper light. And if you know the song, you can sing it along with the team, and And if you don't know, then just listen to those words and may it give you a picture of God that loves you more than anything.
Father, oh, your mercy feels so good. Thank you for always being on our side. Thank you for never looking us, at us like we're enemies, but just giving us mercy. God, we love you, and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.